Tongues of fire. Fire. If there is a, a symbol that is commonly associated with Pentecost Sunday in the Christian imagination, it is the symbol of fire, right? In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost arrived, they're together, and suddenly divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. If you jump back to Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire. Revelation chapter 4, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Conceptualizing the spirit as fire seems to connote themes of power, empowerment, energy, the themes of judgment, refining fire, and of course the theme of presence, divine presence. This morning I will not be preaching from Acts chapter 2, Joel 2, Matthew 3, or Revelation 4, but from John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Now, this is not, I guess, the typical passage preached on Pentecost Sunday, um, although it is one of the gospel readings that the lectionary provides for us. And looking at the texts and thinking back to last year, what I preached, I think this is exactly what we need, John chapter 7. In this passage, Jesus stands up during, not the feast of Pentecost, unfortunately, but the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Sukkot, and he says some strange things about the Holy Spirit. And so John 7, I invite you to turn there with me at this time, and we'll read from verses 37 through 39, a short passage. John chapter 7, and I will be reading from the ESV, and I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's Word. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You may be seated. Friends, here the Holy Spirit is conceptualized not as fire, but as its opposite, as water, water. Water is a key image in the Bible, but a key image especially in the Gospel of John. The Synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, combined mention water 19 times, about six times each. In John's Gospel alone, he mentions water 25 times. This Pentecost Sunday, 2023, I want to follow John's lead. 
And I want to imagine, at least for today, to imagine the Holy Spirit not as fire, but as water. And to ponder what this might mean for us as we enter into a new season of church life, what the lectionary calls ordinary time, which will bring us all the way to Advent. So that is my plan for this morning. But before we go any further, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this original feast of Pentecost, this feast of weeks, a week of weeks from Passover to now. But thank you, Lord, for the way that Peter and early Christians redefined this harvest festival and the way that you redefined it by pouring out your Holy Spirit on this Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I pray, Lord, that we would simply be inspired, that we would be drenched by your life-giving waters this morning, and that we would move into this long season of, of summer and fall full of energy and full of, of motivation to carry out your kingdom purpose in this world. Be with us this morning as we explore your word with earnest hearts together. In Jesus' name, amen. So, whenever you see a theme or a symbol in a biblical book, if you want to know more about it, it's helpful to, to look at that theme throughout the entire biblical book. So, if John is speaking about water in John chapter 7, a natural thing to do would be to uh, explore how John thinks of water throughout his gospel. And that's what we're going to do in just a few moments um, John, however, didn't write or think in a vacuum, but was inspired by, for one, the Hebrew Scriptures. And so after we just skate through John's Gospel, we're going to look at water in the Old Testament and some passages that may have been in his mind before we look into this passage. So let's start with John's Gospel. The Gospel of John, a common text that you'd give to someone interested in Christianity, interested in learning more about Jesus. If you open the Gospel of John, it won't take long before you encounter some funny stuff about water. So John chapter 2 in the ESV is headed with, with the title, The Wedding at Cana, which is Jesus' first public miracle, and let me just summarize the story for you. Apparently, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and it says that the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, and Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, it had become wine. It says, this Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Remember that phrase. If you keep going in John's gospel, just the next chapter, John chapter 3, will meet a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, it says, came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, such as the one at Cana, unless God is with him. And Jesus answered 
Truly I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water. John chapter 4. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that he was gaining popularity, he left Judea in the south and he goes up north to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, some, some area, to get there. Sorry, that was from Lou there. And so he came to a town called Sychar, where Jacob's well, the famous well of Jacob in the Old Testament, was located. So Jesus is tired from the journey, and he sits beside the well, and it's about the sixth hour. It's high noon. The sun is beating down. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus says to the woman, give me a drink. And the woman says, how is it that you ask for a drink from me? Jesus answers, if you knew who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you've got nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water in the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. John 5, you've got the waters of Bethesda where various paralyzed persons are gathered to be healed and a man is healed. John 7, our passage, Jesus speaks about living water. John 13, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples with water. And in John 19, after Jesus dies on the cross, a soldier pierces his side, and out of the wound comes blood and water. Water is all over the Gospel of John. It's no accident, coincidence that he speaks of it in this context in chapter 7. But like I said, John gets this theology of water from somewhere. And that is primarily from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now friends, I'm going to walk through some texts uh, in the prophets especially, and I have seriously cut down the references that I was going to look at. Our Bibles are drenched with water. Um, no pun intended, but seriously, you, if you did a study on, on the symbolism of water, uh, it, would, it would take you a good amount of time. So, in the early chapters of Genesis, of course, there are texts featuring water. We read about God separating the waters at creation. We read about a, a cataclysmic flood of waters that is a judgment upon the world in Genesis 6 and, and beyond. We read about drought famine, the lack of water, etc. But the text that I want to start with, which I think was one of the most prominent texts involving water in the Hebrew imagination, is a text from Exodus, and one that we've actually looked at recently. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for, it says, 400 years, and they're freed through these plagues in Exodus, and God leads them through the Red Sea, through waters, you probably know the story. But then, as they're wandering in the wilderness, 
for days, for years, the people get thirsty, and they start to complain. And we looked at this in our series in Lent in the Psalms, a season of wandering in the wilderness. But Moses prays for the people. He prays that God wouldn't smite the people for complaining. And God provides Moses with a rock, a rock in the wilderness. And Moses, you get this story in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20. Moses, it says, struck the rock, and the rock was pierced. It was opened up, and it gushed forth, you could say, living, hydrating water for the people. So God provides water miraculously for the people as they're wandering in the wilderness. And you see this story uh, expressed in poetic language in the Psalms and in the prophets. It, It clearly made an impact in ancient Israel. If you look at some of the prophets, though, Isaiah, for one, there's so many texts I could cite, but one of the most vivid is in Isaiah 44, where Isaiah is, is receiving a vision about the restoration of Israel, the kingdom, and their relationship with God. And in the voice of God, he says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. We have language there of water and spirit in the same verse in Isaiah 44. I think the most significant water passage in the Old Testament just has to be from the prophet Ezekiel. And this might be a passage you're not that familiar with, but Ezekiel was given a tour, kind of like John in Revelation, this angel leads him on a tour in the book of Enoch. The Second Temple period does something similar. Dante's Inferno guy is going on a tour with an angel or a guide. And this angel is showing Ezekiel the new temple, which stands for God's remaking of all things. And this is what Ezekiel says, and I'm paraphrasing. He says, Then he brought me to the back door of the temple, And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. He brought me out by way of the north gate, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. This is a good leak, by the way, not a bad one. He led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Threw it some more, and it was knee deep. Threw it some more, and it was waist deep, and soon it was deep enough to swim in. It was a river that could not be passed through. On the bank of the river, I saw trees on either side, and the guide said to me, this water flows to the east from Jerusalem to the east and enters the sea. The only sea there, friends, is the Dead Sea, saltiest of waters. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Wherever the water goes, every creature will live and there will be many fish. There are no living things in the Dead Sea. On both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. Their leaves will be for healing water. We've already mentioned Joel chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit. But in Joel 3, get this. It says, in those days when I restore the fortunes of Judah, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, 
and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. I'm almost done, but in Zechariah <clears throat> chapter 12, another famous prophet says, I'll pour out on the house of David a spirit of grace and mercy, so that when they look on me whom they have pierced or struck, remember that. They will mourn or weep as one mourns over a firstborn. A few chapters later in Zechariah, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Friends, the last text that I'll mention is actually not in the Old Testament, but is in a book that some think the author of John's gospel actually wrote. It's the book of Revelation. Either way, even if he didn't, it's very similar in language. And in the last chapter of our Bible, how it's been arranged for us throughout history, Revelation 22, John says that the angel guiding him, like he guided Ezekiel, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life without price. And friends, I'm only scratching the surface of water passages in the Christian Bible. The last thing I have to mention before we get into the text is the festival that is going on when Jesus says what he says. If you turn there to John 7, verse 37 opens, on the last day of the feast. What feast? Well, this is not the feast of Pentecost. This is the feast of, of booths, which happened in October. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, Feast of Tents. And it commemorates God's care for the Israelites as they are wandering in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land, and they had to live in tents. It commemorates the very moment in which the Israelites had to depend on God for their food and, yes, for their water. In this period in the first century, there was an elaborate ceremony that took place every morning of the seven mornings of this feast. And it is called the water drawing ceremony. And so on each of the seven mornings, so the morning before Jesus says what he says, it could have been just moments before, a procession, a kind of parade, went down to the fountain of Gihon, is what it's called. And this is the spring of water that would supply the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem near the temple. And there, once there, a priest would fill a golden pitcher with water. And the crowds would chant, would sing Isaiah 12, 3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They would repeat this and repeat it. And so the priest fills the pitcher with water. The procession goes up to the temple through the water gate, not the same water gate that we know, different water gate. Um, and the people would carry symbols of tabernacles in their hands. 
And so in one hand, it would be uh, myrtle branches and willow twigs, like bundled together to commemorate the materials used to build the tents. And then in the other hand, they would hold a lemon or a, an orange, uh, which signifies the harvest, the first fruits. So they're walking with these two things in hand, following the priest. And when the priest gets to the altar at the temple, he pours the water from this golden pitcher, he pours it into a silver funnel where it would then flow out onto the ground. All of that is happening. All of these texts and so many more are swirling around in the hearts and minds of these people. And then it says that Jesus, who was seated, he stood up and he positioned himself to speak. And he doesn't just speak, but he, it says, cries out. A rare word that's only used on a number of occasions. He cries out. Probably right after this water-drawing ceremony has happened, on the last and greatest day of this feast, he cries out, thinking of all of these texts, of this expectation for the Lord's water to flood and restore Israel, and he says, if anyone's thirsty for that water, come to me, come to me and drink. How unbelievably audacious, how arrogant is that, friends? Unless Jesus is actually the source of living water. He says in verse 38, whoever believes in me. This is the same language we saw in 1 Peter, whoever trusts in the rock. The rock, friends. The Apostle Paul points to this rock in Exodus and says that it is Christ. Early Christians are doing this, trusting the rock that if you strike it, it will gush forth with living water. Jesus says, if you trust that I am that rock, the cornerstone rock, yes, but also the, the well of eternal salvation, if you trust me, he quotes scripture then in verse 38. And you can ask me what scripture he is quoting, and I will plead the fifth, because in my margins, and you can see this in the commentaries, we have no idea what text Jesus is citing, because it is a, a constellation of texts. I've got Isaiah 43, Ezekiel 47, Joel 4, Zechariah 14, Proverbs 18, the wisdom of Ben Sirach, another text, 24. I mean, the message of the Old Testament, not a single verse. Jesus is saying, the Scripture says this. And I hope I've shown you that it does. He says, if you trust in me, if you trust that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Scholars have trouble with this because it isn't clear whose heart this is. Is it Jesus' heart? Or is it the heart of the one who trusts in Jesus? The fact that it's unclear, I think, leaves room for us that it might be both. As we drink from the well of living water that is Jesus, we become a well of living water for others, friends. But we can only become that well if we first drink deeply 
continually from the well that is Jesus. In verse 39, we get a little editorial aside. The author stops quoting Jesus and steps back as the narrator and tells the reader, now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who, the same phrase, believed in him, thinking of the disciples, the soon-to-be apostles, but also others beyond just the twelve, those who were to believe in him would eventually receive the Spirit. But, it said, as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given. My friends, I have to uh, resist a little bit this translation. It's too tame. It's too tame. In Greek, it says, the Spirit... Now, no, don't cast me out. It says, the Spirit not yet was. The Spirit was not yet available. As an Orthodox Trinitarian Christian, I cannot say that the Spirit did not exist. (laughs) I don't think that's what John is saying. But the Spirit didn't become available for the disciples until Jesus is glorified. And what's interesting is if you look at the Gospel of John... Of course, you see the moment after the resurrection where he breathes the Spirit on the disciples. But friends, he breathes the Spirit before then. On the cross, you have the mother of Jesus, you have Mary, the wife of Clopas, you have the beloved disciple, you have Mary Magdalene, and Jesus, it says, when he dies, he he commits his Spirit, is what it says. But the verb translated commit means to hand something over to someone else. The glorification of Jesus doesn't just start at the resurrection. It starts when he is exalted on the cross and when he dies. The Spirit is both life breath and death breath. A spirit that bears witness to the trauma of the crucifixion of Holy Saturday and a spirit that that raises Jesus from the dead. Both there. But Jesus says that this spirit that he would give is the living water that Jews had been longing for as they're meditating on these texts, some of which I've read for you this morning. For the water in the rock, in the wilderness, to be available, the rock needed to be struck. In the Talmud, in the Mishnah, in Jewish tradition, they talk about the belly of the rock, about piercing the belly, and from the belly springing forth living water. And even among Jews, they talk about this in the language of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is identified with this rock. And like the one before, this rock too would be struck, would be pierced, as Zechariah says. One scholar writes, from this wound in his belly, the belly of Jesus, the spear wound, from this wound he promises that rivers of living water shall gush forth. 
That's why you see in John 19, from that spear wound, you see not only blood, but water. Water. From that wound, a wound which, according to some theologians, it blossoms. You see flowers almost, life blossoming from the wound. From that wound will flow the Holy Spirit for all to drink. Friends, based on all of these texts that we've read together this morning, based on our our knowledge of Jesus and who He is, and our position right now as Christians, Pentecost Sunday, Jesus is, I can say with confidence, Jesus is the new temple from which the waters of life and healing gush forth. Jesus is the rock in the wilderness, sustaining thirsty travelers on their way. And Jesus is the cleansing water, which mixed with his blood, wipes us clean. For that reason, I can think of no better way to close our service And by together singing a hymn from the 19th century written by a member of the First Baptist Church of Philadelphia and ordained Baptist minister Robert Lowry. And that is nothing but the blood. Let me read uh, from the chorus before we get in. It is so relevant to what we have just explored. He says, Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood, and I would add the spirit of Jesus. So would you now stand with us as we together sing, Nothing But the Blood. <laughs>